You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now our scripture reading is on page uh, 1178 if you're using the church Bible. And as you're turning there, and those of you who don't use the church Bible are wondering what the reading is, uh, let me just, if I may, correct one of the announcements from this morning and uh, indicate, much to my relief, that uh, the Ferguson who's preaching this evening is John Ferguson and uh, not Sinclair Ferguson. We are brothers in the Lord, but uh, and somewhere back in the flesh, so we look forward to John's ministry this evening. And the Scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1 and the first two verses. Let me say by way of introduction, uh, which is no surprise to those of us who belong to St. Peter's, that we, uh, we have no traditions in St. Peter's. We do things in unusual ways, but somehow or another I've found myself involved in a tradition of always beginning a new Sunday evening series on Sunday morning. It was uh, our non-traditional minister who encouraged me to do this. And so, this morning I'm beginning uh, the evening series. Uh, Some of you are thinking, but the evening series hasn't finished yet. And I know that's true, but I'm still beginning the evening series in the morning to continue this tradition. As Yaroslav Pelikan well said, tradition is the living faith of those who are dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those who are living. And with all that, by way of preface, Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, really slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers or bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago now I was standing at the front of a very large church in the United States, uh, standing beside an elder as the whole front of the church was arrayed with people who were coming into membership. And this was uh, an exciting Lord's Day for the congregation, a not infrequent event in that congregation. And uh, the elder who had become a friend turned to me and he said, don't you think this is the greatest church in the world? Now, By that time, I was experienced enough to know that the answer to such questions should never be yes, and it certainly should not be no. It should be something like, hmm? (laughs) Which he took, I think, for a yes, but the bubble above my head, had I been a cartoon character or in the dandy or Bino, would have said, no, I think the greatest church in the world is the church to which I belong. Not because I belong to it, which would diminish its greatness, but because in a sense, if the Lord has put us into a living Christian fellowship, it's certainly desirable that over a period of time, 
we come to think that as far as we are concerned, as far as I am concerned, this is the greatest church in the world for me. I think if you'd asked the Apostle Paul, now of all these churches that you've been involved in planting, which one would you say was the greatest church? I think there are some evidences that Paul had some Scottish blood in him, and he probably would have given a kind of little Jewish cough because it would have been undiplomatic to give the answer. But I think if you got him into the back room and said, now, off the record, tell us, I think he might have said, for me, the Philippian church. Not because it was the biggest church, not because it was in the most important place in the Roman Empire, although it was part of the Roman Empire, not because it had massive influence, apparently, like the church in Ephesus, which had branched out all around, but because it was the church with which he almost certainly had the best relationship. He was hardly ever there when the church was planted. He was only there for a short time. But there were bonds formed with this church, forged between them, that were quite unique. Indeed, he says in this letter that they were the only church, think of it, the only church that entered into what people nowadays call a gospel partnership with him in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's in prison, probably, although not certainly, in Rome, and he is writing this letter to the Philippians. It is a very beautiful letter, but I think as we study it over these coming months, God willing, one of the things we should be trying to learn from it is how does this letter bring me to say, ask me what for me is the greatest church in the world? Then by God's grace, I want to say, it's St. Peter's Church in Dundee. I know that may not be the greatest church in the world for you and your church. But shouldn't it be true that each of us, as we are part of a Christian fellowship, should develop such an affection for the church, a love for the people, a joy in the advance of the gospel, a growth in the things that we struggle through together by God's grace, that for us, this is the place where we belong. This is the greatest church. Imagine you're walking along the, the beach, and uh, you found a letter in a bottle, and you pulled out the letter, and uh, it was all Greek. You had some Greek, and you were able to read it, or you were to go to our beloved members of the church here who speak Greek fluently, and you, you brought it back home, or you brought it to the church, or you said to somebody, I, I found this letter in a bottle. I think there are, there are several questions that people would ask you. The first one would probably be, well, who wrote it? The second would probably be, well, why did they write this letter that you found in a bottle? And of course, the third thing would be, what does it say? So, let's look at these first two verses in Philippians chapter 1 with these questions in mind. First of all, the identity of the correspondence. Paul's letters follow a pattern of uh, letters characteristic of antiquity. 
Actually, they have a forum that has only relatively recently been revived in modern civilization, in emails, where as soon as the email comes up, you know who it's from. Those of us are old enough to remember letters. You had to, unless you recognized the handwriting, you had to go to the back page, and then sometimes if it was from your doctor, you probably couldn't recognize the handwriting. But in antiquity, the form was always the same. A is writing to B and sends greetings. And Paul does something very interesting with that traditional form of letter writing. You know how sometimes people say the devil is in the details? But in the Christian's life, Christ is in the details. He transforms everything and he transformed the way in which the Apostle Paul wrote letters. And so, in his greetings, in his introductions to his letters, there's always more than the eye sees at first sight, because Paul both enlarges on traditional letter writing, and he also marvelously transforms it. He, there is a there is a fragrance of Christ in the way in which Paul writes letters. Everything Paul does now is different from what Saul of Tarsus did. Everything the Christian does is just that little bit different. When we lived in the United States for many years, people would say, well, what are the differences between living in the United States and living in the United Kingdom? I'm sure Will could put it the other way around. And the answer actually is, well, everything is just a little bit different. And if you belong to the kingdom of God, everything is a little bit different. One of the differences is, in, in these opening words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I guess most of us are pretty familiar with this letter to the Philippians, but I wonder if you've ever noticed this. This letter begins as though it was coming from two people, Paul and Timothy. But if you read through the rest of the letter, I think Paul uses the word we only twice. And when he uses the word we, he doesn't mean Timothy and I. He means we, you, and I. I who am writing the letter, you who, are, you who are receiving the letter. He uses the word I, me, my, mine way over a hundred times. He uses we, ours, us, well, I think you could probably count them on the fingers of one hand. So, what happened here? Did, did, did Paul begin dictating the letter, Paul and Timothy, and then get so irritated with Timothy's bad writing? Give me that pen, and I'll finish it myself. Because the strange thing is, everything now seems as though this is a letter from just one person. Now, Paul was enormously senior spiritually to Timothy. So, why does he include Timothy in writing the letter? One of the reasons probably is that the Philippians were hoping that Paul was going to send Timothy to them. 
Later on in the letter, he reassures them, now, I'm going to send Timothy to you shortly. Wait a minute. Be patient. But for now, he wants to express to them that although Timothy isn't coming just now, it's not that Timothy doesn't care for them. He loves them. And so, Paul wonderfully associates his younger friend in the introduction to the letter. I think, I can't prove, but I think there's another reason. I think these people must have had a special affection for young Timothy. I mean, you know, sometimes when a, when a church gets a young assistant minister, but at least some of the congregation seem to have a kind of, you know, they treat him in a special way as a, as a son. They have an affection. I have friends who welcomed me into their hearts eh, almost 50 years ago when I was an assistant minister. Still friends. I know all these years, I mean, I think what they had to put up with when I was young all these years, they've had this affection for me. And uh, Paul knows that. And because of that, because actually this was Timothy's first missionary journey. He had just arrived. I think for some of these Christians in Philippi, when he began the letter, Paul and Timothy, I think, I think probably some of them drifted a little at this point and remembered the story, the, 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 way, the way in which this, the gospel had come to Philippi. I wonder if you know the story in Acts chapters 15 and 16. The gospel came to Philippi because there was a disruption in the single most significant gospel partnership in the early church between Paul and Barnabas. They had a sharp division of opinion about whether they should take John Mark, who had deserted them in the previous missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to take him. Paul didn't want to take him. And there was a sharp division, we're told, in the Acts of the Apostles. And that was the background. They went in different directions. And Paul did something very interesting. In that early missionary journey, he'd had Barnabas, who was a mature senior Christian, and he did John Mark, who was, a, who was a more, a younger Christian, less sure of where he was, how he would serve. And so, immediately, Paul replaced Barnabas with Silas. And then he wanted to replace John Mark with somebody who was younger and who would learn the ropes, and uh, he replaced him with young Timothy. And that was the background to their mission in Philippi. But there was something else in the background, an extraordinary series of divine providences. We're told they wanted to go to one place, and they were prevented. They wanted to go somewhere else, and the Holy Spirit prevented them. And it was only when Paul had this dream of a, a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. They had no plans to go into Macedonia. But it was because of this amazing providence. Paul got up in the morning, he said to the brothers, I have this very unusual dream last night. Interestingly, I think the text makes clear, he didn't say, I had a dream last night, we're going to Macedonia. What he seems to have said was, I had a dream last night. Let's think this through. God has closed one door. God has closed another door. We tried to go through those doors because we thought that's what God's will was, but He closed the doors 
And now, I've had this dream. And so they sat down and they, they put two and two together. And they said, let's go to Macedonia. And then, of course, you know, if you were sitting there as one of the founding members of the church, or when, as some of you can remember here, when it was just a, a few people in the old days, 20 years ago, there were some of them who remembered that uh, this mission had begun not only in, in a remarkable breakup of a great partnership and in a series of remarkable providences, but it had begun with a, a number of remarkable conversions. Um, Lydia, the businesswoman whose heart the Lord had very gently opened, and that, that poor girl who, who probably was, among other things, not only demon-possessed, but drugged by those men who had made her their slave and Paul exercise the demon, and I think she's there in the Acts of the Apostles because she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then that man, it took an earthquake to bring him to Christ, the Philippian jailer. And all of this would be brought back to the memories of some of these people as they thought, now, this is Paul and Timothy. You know, sometimes if you, you watch, you know that the preacher can see everybody. You understand, if you can see the preacher, he can see you. Many people don't seem to understand that, but it's true. Something to do with physics and light. And sometimes you see people looking across, something, you say something, people look at each other, a couple look at each other, they say, I wonder what's going on there. I wouldn't be surprised that when this letter was, uh, they said, we have a letter from Paul, and they, they began to read the very first, very first few words there would be. You think Lydia would look over in the direction of the, the Philippian jailer? You didn't see this, but when I smiled at David Ellis, who read the Scripture so wonderfully for us this morning, do you know what he did? I should have asked his permission. Give me a wee wink, you know. We understood Lord had been with us in the Scripture reading. And you can almost imagine this happening in the church. And what's the lesson? The lesson is we should frequently reflect on the providences of God that first brought us to faith in Christ and the providences of God that have kept us. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and His amazing providences in our lives. And we need to explore them. Our forefathers would record them for themselves. So just how unusual it is that many of us in this room are Christians at all. There was apparently no natural trajectory to bring us to faith in Christ. And yet, through some of the oddest circumstances, the Lord has brought us to faith. And you say, well, I was brought up in a Christian home. Well, you need to explore the providences of God that lie behind your Christian home, and you'll find this kind of thing. And it's the consciousness of this, that we are a people in whom the Lord has providentially worked, sometimes in the most surprising ways, that encourage us to love the church, to give ourselves to it. So, there's the identity of the correspondence. But secondly, there's the reason for the letter. Why is Paul writing this letter? 
We don't write letters any longer. We get emails. We send emails. If somebody said to me, why do you write emails? There's only one reason I write emails. That's because somebody has sent me an email. I didn't get email to write emails. I got emails so that I could correspond with some people and not with the entire cosmos. So, you eventually you respond because people have got in touch with you, and that's what had happened here. They had sent someone with a gift to them, to Paul in prison, whether he was in Rome or somewhere else. And they had fulfilled their promise to him that they would continue to support his ministry. And he's writing to give thanks for a gift. Remember your mother or father saying, now write to auntie so-and-so. Yeah, it was just one of the most horrible things in all the world, wasn't it, you know? Um, but there's such a spirit of thankfulness here, and it comes out in this letter, and he's giving thanks for the gift, and he's also wanting to encourage them with good news because there are two things that are concerning here. One is they know Paul is in prison, and they're worried about him. And he wants to write to say, look, the Lord in His providence brought me to you, brought you to Christ. Don't think that His providence has failed because I'm in prison. Indeed, the very reverse, as we may eventually see, was the case. And then something else that's so interesting. Epaphroditus, who had brought their gift to them, had fallen sick, desperately sick. His life was in danger. And he says the sweetest thing about Epaphroditus in chapter 2. He doesn't say, Epaphroditus is doing better, don't worry. He says, Epaphroditus is doing better, and you know the thing that made him worry most of all was not that he was sick, but that you might be worried about the fact that he was sick. That's very motherly, isn't it? Maybe more motherly than fatherly. This concern for the spiritual children. And Paul wants them not only to know that he's better, but to know how profoundly he cares for them, risking his very life for them and for the ministry with which they had charged him. And so he's, he's sharing really wonderful news the gospel is advancing while Paul is in prison, and Epaphroditus is better, and what they all discovered when he was sick. God taught them something when Epaphroditus was sick, that Epaphroditus cared more for his fellow believers than he did about his own sickness. And then he's writing because he has some concerns for them. Paul always had these two concerns for every church. One was the threat from outside of false teaching. It seems wherever Paul preached the gospel, false teaching dogged his steps. And it's, it is just so interesting to see that happening all over the world now. The gospel makes an entry into a country that's been closed, and it's as though all the false teaching of pseudo-prophets and apostles from the West pour into those countries. 
And Paul's concerned, he says at the beginning of chapter 3, look out for those who have dogged my steps. Look out for the dogs, he says, with their false teaching. Why is he so concerned about that? For this very simple reason that you see again and again in the New Testament letters and you see it in the early church, because these Christians believed that martyrdom could never ultimately kill you, but false teaching always will if you accept it. False teaching is far more dangerous than martyrdom. Martyrdom becomes the seed of the church. False teaching is poison poured into the church, gangrene that spreads, as he says to Timothy. And he wants to warn them, keep their eyes fixed on Christ and on Christ alone. And then, of course, he's concerned about their unity. You know, when you're young, unity doesn't mean all that much. Truth and all the rest of it. That, that. You know, when you grow older, to belong to a church that's, that's unified. And he writes to them about this. And staggeringly, he calls out two of the church members by name. That must have been quite a moment. You know, if you were the reader, you'd <coughs> clearing your throat at that point when he says, I appeal to Euodia and Suntiki to agree together. Not to agree to disagree, but to agree together. Why? I mean, why does he go to… I was once in a service where a person was named and called out in public, and I remember the sense of shiver that went through the congregation. I'm sure this was the same. Why is that so important? Why do that? That seems so cruel, so embarrassing. Because our agreement with each other and our commitment to each other to agree together is vital to the fellowship of the church. And then, of course, there's this third thing, the identity of the correspondence, the reason for the letter. What's he saying to them? He's saying, I'm writing to you as saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Whole of their Christian life is in that expression, actually. You understand that expression, and you understand what it means to be a Christian. You have dual citizenship. You live in Dundee at Philippi but your real identity is found in Jesus Christ. That's what will make you the kind of person and church family that you are destined to be, and that's the reason for every single conflict you have in your life, that you've got dual citizenship. It's because you're in Christ that the struggle is harder. It's because you're in Christ that people treat you the way they treat you, for good or for ill, and this is, there is this inevitable tension in the Christian's life because we are in Christ, but we're still at Philippi. We're in Christ, but we're still at Dundee or wherever it happens to be. And that's why he wishes them the, the foundational blessings of the Christian life, the grace of God that brings the forgiveness of sins and the peace of Christ that keeps us stable and gives us poise and makes us strong. 
So if the devil is in the details, it's certainly true that with the Apostle Paul, Christ is also in the details. And here's another unusual thing. It's the only Christian church Paul ever addresses where he refers to the elders and the deacons. Isn't that interesting? Church at Philippi, saints set apart for Christ with the bishops slash elders and deacons. What's he saying? He's saying one of the things that makes me love you as a church, he calls them his joy and crown church, is because you're well-ordered, you're well-nourished, and you're well-loved by your bishops and your deacons. Now, here's another question. Nobody in the world knows the answer to this question, so I don't know it, you don't know it. Don't come to me and say, I actually know the answer to that question because you don't know the answer to this question. How were the New Testament letters read out in the church? Well, they read them out. Yeah, of course they read them out, but what happened when they read them out? I mean, you meant to sit there and read through the whole of Romans and take it in. Or was it like Nehemiah's day when they read a bit and then it was explained as this letter was brought back to them? Did they read these first couple of verses and, and then the leader in the church says, anyone, any questions that we can help you understand what Paul means here? And like you're, you're really new in the church and, and you say, uh, well, tell us about how they came here. Who are these people? And perhaps the Philippian jailer would stand up and say, let me tell you who these people are. And then uh, another member says, uh, you know, those were amazing things, weren't they? You know, Lydia, the Lord, the Lord just opened your heart. And whatever the jailer's name was, let's call him Mr. Jailer and Mrs. Jailer and all the little jailers. <laughs> but it took an earthquake to bring you to faith in Christ. And then the girl who's now a mature woman is saying, let me tell you what happened to me. Wouldn't be surprised in a, in a family-style church that that was what happened, and uh, it therefore wouldn't surprise me that if a stranger had been invited along or happened in, he'd want to say, tell me more about this. I, I've never had an earthquake. I've never been demon-possessed. But I see something here. I don't quite understand it, but I see it. How, how has this happened to you all? And maybe they said, you know, Lydia's maybe the person to explain it best. And Lydia would sit down with you and say, well, you know, there was a newcomer to the mission team alongside of Timothy, a doctor called Luke. And he wrote up the story. And the way he put it was this, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. That's how you become part of the church. That's how you become somebody who is a saint, somebody who's at Dundee but, but in Christ. I have taped into the inside of my Bible 
here. Uh, part of an order of service that was torn out by somebody in the church I served in, in Colombia, and one of the, the deacons brought it to me at the end of the service. And I've taped it inside my Bible to remind me every time I preach, somebody like this may be sitting in the congregation. Mr. Ferguson, it said, I was wondering if you could pray for me because I'm not a Christian, but I want to be more than anything. I hope you find this. I hope he found Christ. But what I know he did find was that when he was in the, the midst of the church, which to me at that time, of course, was the greatest church in the world, when he was in the midst of the church, he sensed something. He sensed Christ, and he wanted to discover what those who were sitting around him discovered. And this is how it happens. The Word is explained. The Lord opens our hearts, and we trust in the Savior. You could do that too if you want to be a Christian. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would more and more help us to love our own church. We pray that you would fill us with a sense of the privileges that you've given to us and the marvelous providences that have brought us together. And we ask that for each of us, this may truly be the church which for us is the greatest place in all the world to belong, not because we are the biggest or the most influential, but because this is where in your love you've set us down to learn to love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.